Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. Child welfare sounds like it's full of benevolence, well-meaning, and full of kindness towards children with only the child's best interests in mind and at heart. Family services also have the ring of doing something good for others, providing help and assistance to fulfill a household's basic needs and insured stability. But as our next guest argues, rather than offering benevolence, today's child protective services and family welfare agencies, along with armed police, impose not benevolence, but a benevolent terror. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with Dorothy Roberts, author of Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. Dorothy argues, we should stop calling this brutal regime by its benevolent titles, Child Welfare System, Child Protective Services, Foster Care. The mission of Child Protection Services agencies is not to care for children or protect their welfare. Rather, they respond inadequately and inhumanely to the effects of our society's abysmal, abysmal failure to care enough about children's welfare. Sure, abuse of children and the demolition of families has finally made the news when it comes to indigenous boarding schools and the horrors at the U.S. border with Mexico, and that's great that that coverage is finally happening. But what is forgotten is, again, Dorothy writing, the United States extinguishes the legal rights of more parents than any other nation on Earth. Yes, USA is number one at family destruction. Then there's the role of what Dorothy calls family policing in the larger carceral projects that include the, imprison, the prison industrial complex. Yet the foundational role of family policing within racial capitalism was overlooked in the discussion over defunding the police following the police murder of George Floyd. The answer is no longer reform, but as Dorothy makes her case, abolition and a complete reimagining of child welfare. We are very excited to have on our show today Dorothy Roberts, the George A. Weiss University Professor of Law and Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, where she directs the Penn Program on Race, Science, and Society. Dorothy is also the author of Fatal Invention, How Science, Politics, and Big Business Recreate Race in the 21st Century, which documents the rise of a new racial politics that relies on reinventing the political system of race as a biological category written in our genes and obscures deepening racial equalities or inequalities in a supposedly post-racial society. 
Dorothy's earlier writing includes Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty, which received a 1998 Myers Center Award for the Study of Human Rights in North America, and Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, which received research awards from the Institute on Domestic Violence in the African American Community and the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children. Dorothy received the 2015 Solomon Carter Fuller Award from the American Psychiatric Association for providing significant benefit to the quality of life for black people, and a 2015-2016 American Council of Learned Societies Award. Follow Dorothy on Twitter at Dorothy E. Roberts. Find out more about Dorothy by visiting her website, DorothyERoberts.com. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, anything new by you? Will you be joining us this weekend at the anniversary party? I believe so. You know, I have to work on Saturday at 6 a.m., but... Oh, uh, You know, and the next day I'm supposed to work at 8 as well, so... Wow. <laughs> we'll see how long I make it there. A- anything uh, new by you otherwise? Um, You know, I... Today I'm trying to go look for mushrooms since it just rained so much a couple of days ago. I don't know. I've never really tried this before, so no, you've never we'll tri- see if two days is long enough to wait. Oh, so uh, <laughs> do you know what kind of mushrooms you'll be looking for? Um. Oh yeah. Like I mean, some like there there are a few I would keep my eye out for. I mean, I guess what I really would like to find would be chicken of the woods, which is like a bright orange and yellow mushroom, and it should be this. I don't know. I, I was saw, seeing a lot of videos of it earlier in the season, but I found one like three years ago, like this time of year, and I'm still thinking about it. So That's very cool. That's very <laughs> cool. I wish I had the vis- vision to forage. I do not have the trust in my vision to forage. I, I think you could probably, you could maybe see this like bright orange, yellow, like, and then have somebody else go look closer. No, there you <laughs> go. That's what I can do. Bring somebody <laughs> along. So throwing a party, being the host is always a lot of work. And at least for me, by the time the party rolls around, I'm usually partly or mostly spent. The work you got to put in, the excitement leading up to the party, it all can be very exhausting, especially after not hosting a this is hell anniversary party since before the pandemic but oddly i keep getting more and more excited each day we get closer to the this is hell anniversary and listener appreciation party happening this saturday september 17th at the bar downstairs from where i am sitting right now carrie's lounge 2251 west devon avenue in chicago's westridge neighborhood with doors opening at 3 p.m that's carrie's lounge c-a-r-y apostrophe s some people think I'm saying like John Carey's Lounge. It's not that kind of Carey. C-A-R-Y apostrophe S. Music starts at 4. First of three raffles of This Is Hell related prizes takes place around 6. And there will be the closing for the This Is Hell sponsored art show. This is art. Instead of worrying, I'm actually excited about this party, which is not normal for me. Being someone who hosts a show with a optimistic title this is hell being excited about impending fun for me it's just not the norm but more important than any of that Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience this week's question from hell in the 26 year history of this program which moment topic or guest made you mutter this is hell to yourself the loudest (laughs) the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want the t-shirt the tote bag the face covering the face mask the coffee mug the trucker's cap 
the winter beanie or toque if you prefer as well as the this is held guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s you can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to this is and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to remember completely listener supported this is hell without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your support and for those of you who do not win the question from hell this week all of our merchandise will be available at the party this weekend again saturday september 17th beginning at 3 p.m at carrie's lounge 2251 west devon avenue in chicago's westridge neighborhood you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show, and we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Now a word from our sponsors, and as we are completely listener-supported, that means from you, our listening audience. You can email us, as I was saying, uh, to chuck at thisishell.com, and if uh, you send us your guest or topic suggestions, constructive or destructive criticism we will likely share whatever you send us on air we got an email from listener Tamara last night Tamara writes hi Chuck thanks to all of your great work I've been a listener since this is how was only on WNUR and I am so glad your show is no longer preempted by sports by exclusively being on WNUR we actually have been uh, preempted by sports over the last couple of weekends in WNUR. So the only way you can hear the entire show each and every week is by coming here to thisishell.com. Tamara writes, I am writing to ask you to consider interviewing Joe Grimm Feinberg about his latest book, actually a play, Praise Boss, put out by Charles H. Kerr Publishing Company, subversive literature for the whole family since 1886. Praise Boss's central character is the infamous Mr. Block, originally a cartoon character whose boot-looking exploits were first documented in the IWW, uh, Industrial Worker Paper, in 1905, and later put to song by Wobbly Bard, Joe Hill, in 1913. Mr. Block attempts to sleep his way to the top in Praise Boss with comedic results. I've attached a copy of the book here, Be Prepared for Labor Puns. Thanks for your consideration. Tammy, full disclosure, when I'm not at my day job at the University of Chicago, I'm Kerr's secretary treasurer. So the full title of the play is Praise Boss, The Erotic Adventures of Mr. Block or Labor's Loves Lost by Joseph Grimm Feinberg. Along the edge of the cover of the play, it reads, A proletarian sex tragicomedy in five acts written for the disconcerting diversion of the rich and the serious edification of the rabble for performance on stages and in closets everywhere. See? That's how these commies get you. They somehow sneak their way into respectable publishers sullying the name of the great Charles Kerr, whoever he was, and spread their wobbly propaganda through theatrical entertainment. And next thing you know, you're looking up Joe Hill and the International Workers of the World and whatever the hell the wobblies were online. And just like that, Wait, that play actually sounds really good. If you are in a theater group and you are interested in reading and possibly staging Praise Boss, email me at chuck at See, that's how they get you. Again, if you want to contact us, email chuck at And if you do, we'll likely read whatever you send us on air. Coming up, 
how and why child welfare and family services in the states became family policing in the largest foster home industry in the world. Lindsay will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, in the 26-year history of this program, which moment, topic, or guest made you mutter, this is hell to yourself the loudest? In the 26-year history of the program, which moment, topic, or guest made you mutter, this is hell to yourself the loudest? We will also have this week in Rotten History and tell you who will be on the show later this week. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing, this is hell. When we have discussed abolition previously on the show, it's often about the prison industrial complex. When guests have discussed defunding, it's most likely about the police. But there's another aspect of that carceral project that is far too often overlooked, and that is family policing through Child Protective Services. Here to explain, Dorothy Roberts is author of Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. Dorothy, welcome to This Is Hell. It truly is an honor to have you on the show. Oh, thanks so much, Chuck. I've been enjoying the introduction and I'm really happy to be on your show. You write that Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, published back in 2001, documented the racial realities of the child welfare system in America. At that time, more than a half million children had been taken from their parents and placed in foster care. Has that situation gotten any better or worse than it was in 2001? Is the system on the same trajectory it has been since 2001? Is it worsening? Is the foster care industry growing? Or is it uh, even maybe shrinking a little bit? Well, the numbers of children in foster care has diminished somewhat. Instead of half a million, there's uh, 400-something thousand children in foster care. And sometimes the system heads like to point to this reduction in numbers. But the fundamental design of the system is the same which is it only operates by threatening families that the state is gonna come and take their children away and they have to abide by the mandates of the system, which is basically a policing system that tells them to do certain tasks that usually have nothing to do with meeting the needs of their children, or it still takes thousands and thousands of children away from their homes and puts them in a very damaging foster care system. So the idea that the numbers are shrinking and therefore the system isn't as bad or oppressive is, I think, uh, a mistake. It's still based on the same kinds of terrorizing of the same families. These are the most marginalized families, politically disenfranchised families in the nation. And I would also argue that there are ways in which it's worse because the system doesn't just take children away. It also inflicts massive surveillance on communities and the methods of surveillance have intensified. So many of these agencies now engage in predictive analytics. They hire big companies like IBM and SAS 
to collect massive amounts of information about families and their social networks. And they engage in artificial intelligence and algorithmic ways of predicting risk that is even more intense than in the past. So on the one hand, there are fluctuations in the numbers of children, although it's still hundreds of thousands of children in foster care. So I don't want to make it sound like it's any you know real dent in the numbers. Uh, but in other ways, it's more of a policing agency because of these new methods of surveillance. And also there are increasingly tighter ties and collaborations with law enforcement and prisons. And so the connection, you know, if you look at the total carceral apparatus of surveillance and punishment as a false way of meeting human needs, it's expanded. Uh, and, and that's why it's so important to understand the way in which a system operates and not just look at child removal, although that's you know, that's oppressive and horrifying and, and again, the center of how the system works. But we also have to see it as this massive surveillance system that is deeply entangled with criminal punishment. So if it's punitive in nature, if it uses so much surveillance, if it uses these predictive analytic models, that would suggest that there is evidence that these kinds of systems work? Is there any evidence that predictive analytics, that this surveillance, that uh, the, this uh, punitive nature of child protective services works in providing safety and security for the child that they are supposedly concerned about? No, it's just the opposite. Uh, what it works to do is what it was designed to do, which is terrorize families divert attention from the real needs of children and how they would be met, for example, by reducing poverty in America. And instead, it continues to promote this false idea that the way to keep children safe and improve children's welfare is by massive state intervention into marginalized families and traumatizing them and taking children away and putting them in a damaging foster care system. So it works in the way it was designed to do, it's oppressive function, but it doesn't work to do what it pretends to do, which is to improve children's welfare. You know, there's no evidence it does that. Uh, it, it doesn't work to provide security for children. It's taking hundreds of thousands of children away from their families making them insecure. Uh, many children are moved multiple times from place to place. Many are put in institutions, con what's called congregate care, group homes and prison-like institutions. And there's so much evidence that foster care inflicts trauma on children, that children who experience foster care are more likely to end up in prison, juvenile detention, not go to college, have lower incomes, and have post-traumatic stress disorders as a result of being in foster care. So there really isn't. It's amazing. I, I cite the work of 
uh, professor at MIT, uh, Professor Doyle, who some years ago, I mean, his studies are a bit dated. They were in the early 2000s, but he is a statistician and he asked the question, well, is foster care actually good for children? And there's so little evidence that it helps children and lots of evidence of the harms of foster care. And he conducted a series of studies that looked at children who were either, you know, sort of at the, the margins, they could stay home or go to foster care. You know, it's hard to develop a scientific study to figure out if children are better off in foster care because you you could argue that all the harms that they experience would have occurred if they stayed at home. But researchers have tried to look into this. I think Doyle's work is the best. And he looked at children in Chicago, actually, uh, who and, and other parts of Illinois who were on that borderline of going to foster care, staying at home. And he found that the ones that stayed at home fared much better than the ones who were put in foster care on a number of levels. He even looked at, well, maybe being in foster care improved their safety. And he looked at emergency room uh, entries of children. And there were far more in foster care who had to go to the emergency room than those who stayed at home. So. Uh, that's just one example. Uh, I think it's also important to listen to what children who have experienced foster care and families that have been traumatized and hear what they have to say. And a growing number of them are speaking out and working to end this system because of the harms inflicted on their families that made their children worse off because this punitive system got involved in their lives. So, uh, all right, let's, I'm trying to come up with an, another reason why they might be <laughs> using this kind okay. of punitive system. Is it due to cost? Is this cheaper than providing the resources that would be necessary to overcome poverty, which is causing most of the problems that these children and these families are facing their lives? Is this more cost efficient? Absolutely not. And I, I first of all, we'd have to ask, well, what kind, I know this is, is sort of the kinds of questions that uh, capitalist approach asks. I don't know that it's your genuine question, but uh, we should, of course, question the assumptions behind that kind of question, which these are questions that are asked all the time. And in fact, one of the reasons why the foster care population has diminished is because some people, policymakers and legislators have realized that it's so expensive to maintain children in foster care. So actually it's the opposite. You know, people who are concerned about the costs have argued for reducing the foster care population. And I think that's part of why it has been reduced, not because of any true care and concern for these families, but just to reduce costs. But on the other hand, there is a huge investment in continuing foster care because it generates so much money. There's upwards of $40 billion spent in federal, state, and local funding to maintain children outside of their homes uh, or to 
take them from their homes and put them into adoptive homes, as opposed to the much smaller amounts of money that are spent on providing supports for families. And so this is a expensive system. The amount of money spent on benefits to foster parents or in the private foster care industry, the money that's given to agencies, private for-profit or not-for-profit companies that are in the business of maintaining children in foster care, uh, that money is far more than what's given through the system to families or TANF benefits, the temporary assistance to needy families. The money given to a struggling parent to take care of their children is far less than what's given to foster parents to take care of those children. So it's not cost effective at all. Uh, it's, but there are many people who have an investment, direct financial investment in this industry. I, I, I also want to say though that, you know, a lot of what goes on in America in terms of meeting basic needs of housing and healthcare and education uh, and food and clothing, it's extremely inefficient. We know, for example, that we have the biggest healthcare system in the Western world. We spend much more money on healthcare and yet we're far down the list in terms of how healthy our nation is. So the amount of money spent is not an indicator of how helpful it is in meeting human needs. Instead, it's an indicator of how people in power make money off of vulnerable, pe vulnerable people. That's what's going on in this system. And also, even more fundamentally, how systems like this, and I would include the prison system as well, and our healthcare system, uh, and, but family policing, I think especially, is valuable to people in power because it sends this false message that we don't need radical social change. We don't have to eradicate childhood poverty. You know, we don't need to more equally distribute resources, whether we're talking about healthcare or housing. You know, we don't need uh, affordable housing in America. We, we, what we need is to punish parents, blame them for their children's unmet needs and punish them, put them in a, in foster care and that solves the problem. So even more fundamentally, you know, uh, the question of the finances, it's, it's deeper than that. It's that it supports a racial capitalist system that relies on people's wealth and ability to make money and supports wealth accumulation of the most powerful people. Uh, and, and that's what this system ultimately supports, uh, including through the racist aspects of it. You know, the, the families that are targeted the most are Black and Indigenous families. And that's been the case from the very origins of this system. And those families uh, uh, that are struggling because of structural racism and racial capitalism, you know, the, the message is, well, the reason why their children are struggling 
is not because of these unequal structures, it's because they've got bad pathological parents. That message promotes a white supremacist approach to radical change in America, you know, to tamp it down. Uh, it, it's again one of the, it's it's such a powerful system in terms of the ideology it promotes, and it does it in such an insidious way by convincing so many people that these poor, impoverished black and native children are being cared for by the system and diverts people's attention from the real reasons why black and native indigenous children are have the highest rates of poverty. You know, it's not because they have bad unloving parents and need to be rescued by white saviors. It's because of the unequal structures in our society. So you know, long answer to your question, but I think we do have to look at all these different layers of the way in which this system operates to really understand what its function is and why so many people don't understand its function or fooled by this myth of benevolence and child protection and why it's so important to abolish it. You worked on reforming the child welfare system for decades, but then you became an abolitionist uh, when it comes to child welfare. The thing that we were, we, you were probably uh, told this the exact many uh, millions of times that, like I was told, you know, that the business runs a lot more efficiently than government. That if we just run government like a business, everything will be more efficient, more cost effective. Everybody will get better services. How far would deprivatizing child welfare service go toward fixing the problems so people so children can be more safe and more secure is deprivatizing is profiteering the driving force behind the problems with the child welfare system could that reform fix the system or do we have to go farther uh, we have to go farther so even before privatization the child welfare services and the you know what it really is the threat and the practice of child removal and family separation have been used by the state to promote oppression of the most marginalized communities in America. So I, I don't think we can put it all on privatization. Uh, it, it's, it, it, it is an ideology and a practice of family separation that has been used by the federal government for a long time. I mean, I, I trace it back to the separation of enslaved families, which wasn't you know, a federal government program, but it was embedded in the legal apparatus of the institution of slavery. And we could also look at uh, the way in which the federal government, specifically the US military, use child removal as a weapon of war against native tribes uh, in the 1800s. And then a federal policy of child removal through the formal child welfare system in uh, native communities to destroy them and assimilate their children into dominant white culture. So there's so many examples of how the US state has used 
family separation uh, long before President Trump did, you know, as a weapon of oppression and even a weapon of war. Uh, but we do have to take into account in uh, more recent decades, the growing privatization of child welfare and the, uh, the way in which many, many states are engaging in contracts with private companies, some for-profit, some not-for-profit, to manage their foster care systems. I mean, there are private companies that are making money off of running state foster care systems and lots of evidence that that financial incentive, which encourages children to stay in foster care because these companies make money off of every day that a child is in foster care, it also incentivizes them not to pay attention to abuses to children in foster care because they don't want to have to deal with that impediment to their you know, steady flow of money. Uh, and this has been documented even by a congressional report looking into one company where after a, a white uh, little girl was killed by her foster mother and then Congress did an investigation and you know and spoke out against the way in which money incentivizes uh, not paying attention to abuse of children in foster care, although the recommendations weren't to stop it. <laughs> the recommendations were just you know greater government's supervision of these contracts. Uh, so I would say that deprivatizing it and just relying on government agencies isn't going to solve the problem at all because the problem is rooted in the very design of family policing and it, you know, it might uh, diminish some of the harms to children, but uh, to me, diminishing the harms of a system that is designed to harm is not the answer. Uh, that's not to say we shouldn't do everything we can as we're working to abolish it to minimize uh, the suffering of people entangled in the system, but our aim should be to dismantle it entirely and replace it with approaches that truly support families and keep children safe. Uh, so I, I, I wouldn't at all want to indicate that by ending private contracts, somehow that's going to uh, magically end the fundamental design. The fundamental design was there again, historically, long before privatization became in vogue. Well, what would it take to have that historical context not ha not be such a contributing factor to the way in which we approach child welfare? How do you erase the history of child welfare in order to abolish the child welfare system we have and improve upon it so it's better for children and families? Okay, so you don't erase the history. You acknowledge the history. You acknowledge that the history set a foundation for how this state, the US government and state and local governments today 
approach child welfare. Uh, and then you work to abolish it. That's why we have to abolish it. The history tells us that this is why I think the history is important, not because we're looking backward and saying that's how it used to be, but we're looking at the fundamental ideological and design, uh, the foundations of the system that have not changed. They're, they've morphed in a number of ways. They've mutated to conform to current political, uh, current political conditions. But the objective has been the same from the beginning, which is to control and dominate and punish the most marginalized communities in America. And those have basically remained the same. And this is another sign that the history has continued. It hasn't, it's nothing in the past. It's not an accident that the same families that are targeted by the system today, that is Black families, Native families, and impoverished and low-income working-class white families are the same ones that have always, you know, from the colonies, been targeted by this system. And again, that's because the ideology of it has remained exactly the same. Now, I could go through decade after decade and point out how there have been differences. So, you know, originally when charities began to deal with impoverished white children by putting them in foster care, uh, black children were excluded from these kinds of services to so-called services to families. Black children were more likely either to be ignored altogether or to be put in the new juvenile justice system and treated worse when they were there as well. Uh, and it was only with the civil rights movement and the demand largely by black mothers to be included in the various kinds of welfare supports that single white mothers were getting, uh, the coming out of the New Deal, where again, black families were excluded from welfare supports, uh, all sorts of welfare that was going to white families, black families were explicitly, well, it wasn't, it, you know, domestic workers were excluded from the New Deal uh, uh, welfare benefits. Black families barely got any kind of child welfare support. Uh, the numbers are just astonishing. Uh, you know, there was a handful of families. With civil rights struggle, Black people began to be incorporated into the so-called child welfare system, but it changed dramatically, just like welfare changed dramatically as more and more Black families were on the rolls to become more punitive. So now instead of providing services, giving uh, you know, puny grants to families to help them survive, foster care became the chief service to Black families. And we see a rule, not only that Black mothers are getting kicked off of the welfare rolls as a direct backlash against civil rights gains, but the rule that, well, if they 
have an unsuitable house, as it was called, so couldn't get welfare benefits, then their children shouldn't be able to remain at home. And we see this huge skyrocketing of the foster care population. That's what made it reach over 500,000 children in 2000 because of this growing, paralleling the mass incarceration and the skyrocketing of the prison system. Altogether, uh, on the backs of Black families, these punitive systems uh, and neoliberalism stepping in in the 1990s with the crime control bill uh, targeting Black communities, the 1996 welfare restructuring law signed by Bill, all these are, you know, signed by Bill Clinton and uh, passed by Democratic Congress. Neoliberalism, though, the idea that that even Democrats were going to support privatizing uh, everything and we won't have welfare like we knew it. Uh, so welfare entitlement abolished in 1996. It becomes a behavior modification system, but less attention paid to the very next year, 1997, the Adoption and Safe Families Act. What do we do about this expensive foster care system with you know, over 500,000 children in it? The answer was terminate parental rights faster and put these children up for adoption. Uh, a private remedy for the struggles of Black families. And much of this was explicitly racialized, just like the Black welfare queen, uh, uh, a racialized message to support abolishing the welfare, entitled, federal entitlement to welfare. We also have this image of the bad Black mother who, you know, it's basically the same image, who doesn't care for her children, her rights should be terminated, and these children should be adopted, preferably by white families. Uh, by the way, we're seeing a similar message now. I know different topic, but with the Dobbs decision and uh, these uh, white anti-abortion uh, people with signs saying, we will adopt your children. So uh, this, we, this history is a continuing history. We can't erase it. It set the foundation for the system we have now. And that's why it cannot be reformed because it is a system that has always been designed to punish and regulate, surveil, uh, disrupt uh, to, as a backlash to movements for freedom and liberation and, uh, and, and against white supremacy and against racial capitalism. We can see this in every single historical period. And so the idea that we can just reform it, when you, you, can, you, re, you cannot reform a system that is designed to oppress, reforming it just expands it. And that's part of the reason why we still have this system today and why so many people are fooled into thinking it's benevolent because it's been reformed to make it seem like it's gentler, like it's reducing its numbers, you know, like they're not, it's not inflicting as many horrible harms, fewer harms to children than it used to inflict. Uh, although, as I mentioned, it's actually expanding in some ways, but then we don't get the fundamental radical change that we need which is what would actually support families, improve children's welfare, and keep children safer 
uh, we continue to tinker away at minor changes that usually come along with other ways of expanding the system. And uh, we end up in 2022 with a foster industrial complex that is basically relying on the same tool, which is we will take your children away from you because of the harms to them caused by structural inequalities in our society. So does the the kind of poverty denialism that neoliberalism insists that we have, does that kind of structural racism denialism that neoliberalism insists that we have, does that lead to only a punitive solution? I mean, do we have a choice? Does does society become increasingly punitive as it continues to deny capitalism's impact and uh, on society, on equality, and structural racism? Do we do we have a choice? Can we address poverty? Or under neoliberalism, are we not allowed to? And therefore, the only option we have is a punitive option. Well, I, I cannot accept that. No, we we so. Uh, so on the one hand, that's the message of neoliberalism is that we have to have punishment. I have long written about this, that punishment goes hand in hand with privatization. Privatization is not just the shrinking of government. Uh, even in the, the brief history I just gave, it shows how the privatization of meeting humans, human needs went hand in hand with increased law enforcement, with the crime bill, uh, increased behavior modification of people who need help to take care of their children instead of entitlement to benefits and in speeding up of termination of parental rights, child removal and uh, transfer of children from impoverished families to wealthier families through adoption. So it has always required, yes, I mean, I, if I interpret your question correctly, yes, neoliberalism requires punishment because the state has to do something with the people who are inevitably going to be suffering from the disinvestment in their communities uh, from the uh, uh, shrinking of the safety net and from the, you know, ignoring the ways in which our society has to fundamentally change in order to be humane and, egal and egalitarian. And so uh, it, it, yes, privatization requires punishment. So in that sense, the neoliberalism leaves us with that option. According to that way of thinking, but we could also reach a completely different answer, which is that because it leads to punishment, because it has the solution uh, to meeting humans, human, human needs under the conditions of privatization and racial capitalism uh, through punishment, and we recognize that that is an unacceptable way of 
treating human beings. It's an unacceptable way of relating to each other. And it's, it's that realization that it's unacceptable that leads us to say we have to abolish it. Uh, so again, you know, uh, my answer to your questions about history and about punishment are, yes, you know, that's it's true that there is this foundational history. It's true that the under a neoliberal racial capitalism ideology, you have to have punishment. Yes, that's true. But the answer isn't a race history. It's acknowledge where that history leads us and you know where it has led us. The answer isn't, oh yes, accept punishment. It's acknowledge that punishment is the unacceptable answer to neoliberalism. And you know, that it, it's it, it's the unacceptable necessity of neoliberalism, and it's the unacceptable necessity of racial capitalism. And that's why we have to abolish them, including, you know, to start with, I mean, I have I my book isn't about abolishing all of it, but it's about, you know, I I right now am focusing on abolishing a particular system which is deeply entangled with another system I I want to abolish the prison industrial complex. But let's focus, you know, focusing on the family policing system. And again, I'm I'm trying to connect it to the need to abolish racial capitalism. I'm not trying to ignore that at all, but just focusing on uh, the family policing system, understanding its history, understanding its connection to neoliberalism, understanding its connection to racial capitalism and how it supports those, then uh, that should lead us to the conclusion that it must be abolished. It must be abolished and replaced with an approach that truly supports families, that truly meets children's material needs and no longer punishes parents because they are struggling within the conditions that are created by neoliberalism and racial capitalism. You call this a, first of all, we're speaking with Dorothy Roberts, author of Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a safer world. You call this a family policing system, and very accurately, by the evidence that you offer in your book, and it's an absolutely uh, enlightening book, um, when you call this uh, family policing, and I, maybe it's just that people don't understand uh, people who are not a poor and within a poor black family that has somehow got into the child welfare services uh, view um, that this uh, family policing, they might not even understand how this family policing comes about. You write that every year government agents invade the homes of hundreds of thousands of families in poor and low income communities without a warrant or any other kind of judicial authorization in the name of protecting the children who live there. So a couple of questions, Dorothy. Is the issue a lack of awareness? Is just an information campaign? Can that do a lot to, and I know that you are for abolition, but how far can that go in reforming? Or for instance, can just a warrant or any other kind of judicial authorization, could that be a simple reform 
that could do some good, at least within the child welfare serv- uh, child welfare services. It can this be done? Uh, can the child welfare services be reformed through an information campaign or just having warrants or some other kind of authorized legal documentation for when there is police involved? Yes. So I would say that our horizon, our aim, our vision should be abolition. But I really appreciate Ruth Wilson Gilmore's idea of non-reformist reforms, recognizing that we are not going to demolish this system that's rooted in you know, over 400 years of US history anytime soon. And we can only accomplish it through incremental change. And those are reforms, but they're non-reformist reforms in the sense that we don't believe that these reforms are going to be enough. They have to be reforms that are leading toward the total dismantling of this system that's designed to oppress people. And so some of what you mentioned is absolutely essential. This is why I wrote my book, or one of the reasons I wrote my book, Torn Apart, was to inform the public about how the system actually operates and have lots of documentation about the realities of this system. Uh, the numbers of families that are disrupted, half of Black children will be subjected to a child welfare investigation by the time they reach age 18. Now, unless you believe that there is something drastically wrong with Black families, you know, something innate in Black families that makes them maltreat their children. And I know that, you know, which to me is a very white supremacist racist idea. Some people do believe that. But if you don't believe that, you have to question why it is that half of Black children would need uh, this kind of investigation by the time they reach age 18 in order to be protected. You might start to think, maybe this is excessive. Uh, and why is it that Black children are targeted so much? And you might try, start to think about how this is a racist targeting of these families and not really a system designed to protect them. And lots of other aspects of this system that I think would open many people's eyes. And part of the reason why most Americans don't know about how the system actually operates is because they they're not at risk of being targeted. The people who are at risk of being targeted, it's not bad parents, it's not pathological parents, it's impoverished parents, it's working class parents, especially if they're black and indigenous. And so because largely because of residential segregation in America, I have found, I did a, a small study of this, that child welfare agency involvement is concentrated in black neighborhoods or on native reservations in big cities or uh, in uh, rural places uh, around the nation. And so people who don't live in those neighborhoods don't know what's going on. But people who do live in those neighborhoods, everybody knows. It's not just the families that have had their kids taken away from them, it's their relatives and their friends and their classmates and the people next door. Everybody knows how this system operates in their neighborhood. And they believe me, they see it as an invading force. And so uh, 
that's part of the reason why we have to educate people, raise a consciousness about the system. So yes, that is extremely important. And again, a reason I wrote Torn Apart. But also you point out some of the legal strategies that we could adopt in order to chip away at the power of the system. Family policing operates in the most abusive way. Uh, you mentioned when police come along. So they do frequently bring police officers with them when they go into black neighborhoods to help to terrorize families and get families to do what they want. But it's not just police officers that are required by the Fourth Amendment to get a warrant before they search someone's home. Any government agent has to do that. And caseworkers who are going to investigate an accusation of child maltreatment, which by the way, can just be some anonymous caller who might have a beef against you and calls up uh, child welfare on you. And this, this happens all the time, but they can go and show up at your doorstep in one of, if you happen to live in one of these neighborhoods and demand entry based on some vague accusation that you're maltreating your children. And most parents let them in. They, they hardly ever go with a warrant. They don't bother to get a warrant. They just show up because they know the threat that I have the power to take your children away from you, which again, people in the neighborhood know they can do that and do do that is enough to let them in, but they are violating the constitutional rights, rampantly violating constitutional rights of impoverished parents who are frightened or don't know their rights. And that's why some abolitionists like JMAC for Families, for example, is an organization in New York that has an abolitionist strategy. And one of its main efforts is to get the New York State Legislature to pass a law requiring that caseworkers give parents their Miranda rights, let them know they have a right to request a lawyer, they have a right to a warrant before they search the home. Uh, by the way, the American Bar Association just issued a report where it recommends that as well. And it found that child welfare agencies around the nation are routinely invading people's homes without a warrant based on their threats to families. Uh, and so there's, there is more and more awareness, more than I've ever seen in my uh, upwards of 30 years of work on the regulation of Black families. Uh, just in the last even two years, I've seen so much movement on this as people become aware of how abusive, powerful, and oppressive this system is. And we've seen a lot of attention being brought to, as you write in your book, being brought to what is happening at the U.S.-Mexico border with families and children. We've seen a lot of attention of late brought to uh, what were called, you know, indigenous boarding schools, whether here in the United States or in Canada. Uh, we've seen at least a lot more attention being brought to that that system. And you write that the child welfare system has unparalleled powers to terrorize entire communities, shape national uh, policies, and reinforce our unequal social order. Whether it's indigenous boarding schools or this foster care system, how much of a role, how important, how significant is the role of those systems 
in promoting, in reaffirming and reinforcing white supremacy, white supremacy and white privilege is addressing the child welfare system a, a major step towards addressing white supremacy and white privilege? I think working to abolish the child welfare system, recognizing how it operates, whom it targets, how it functions, what its purpose is, is absolutely essential to ending white supremacy in America. It is a white supremacist form of oppression that goes back to the time of slavery. And in every period of US history, we can see how white supremacists have used child removal as a tool of disrupting black communities, disparaging black families. And in the course of that, hindering Black liberation struggles. We could see how it's been rooted from the beginning in the idea that Black parents and family caregivers should not have authority over their children. And disrupting families has always been a major way of tamping down resistance. It's both a backlash against it. And again, we can see in US history how family separation has been a way of retaliating against civil rights gains, against liberation struggles. We can also see how it's been used as a weapon to target Black families and communities, Native families and tribes, and other people of color as a way of seeking to control them, to dominate them, and also, importantly, to send a message that the reason why these families are not succeeding in America, you know, why their wealth is dramatically lower than for white families, why their children are dramatically more likely to be put in juvenile detention, why they're dramatically more likely, uh, Black children, to have parents who are incarcerated, uh, why it is that Black children have higher rates of poverty. The message sent by the family policing system is it's because of their parents. It's because their parents are depraved, pathological, incompetent. And therefore, the answer to racial inequality in America is not to address white supremacy because white supremacy isn't the cause of the children's problems. It's the, the cause is their parents. So the answer is more government surveillance of black families and intervention into their lives and if needed, remove their children uh, and maybe better yet, terminate their parents' rights and get them adopted by white families. That is the message that is sent by our current child welfare system, which again is a longstanding message that has supported white supremacy. I think we have to pay more attention to how regulation of families is a tool of white supremacy and racial capitalism. I mentioned Dobbs before. I think now with the Dobbs decision, people are starting to recognize 
the way in which banning abortion and compelling pregnancy and birth, the regulation of people's bodies and their decisions about their reproduction, their family lives, is a form of oppression that is deeply tied to other forms of oppression uh, and, and, and structural inequities, inequities of race and gender and class and disability. And, and heterosexism, you know, people are starting to recognize this. This is something I've been writing about again, you know, for my book, Killing the Black Body came out 25 years ago. I have been stressing this and it's recently I'm seeing that people, and, and it's not just me, other people, there's a reproductive justice movement that has recognized this for decades as well. Uh, and people are now recognizing the connections between these carceral approaches to meeting human, human needs. I think it's time, and I hope my book helps to emphasize how family regulation and family policing are so important to maintaining white supremacy and why it's so important for us to abolish family policing at the same time that we're working to abolish the prison industrial complex. Dorothy, you are a professor of law and a professor of sociology. So when it comes to the law, you write that child welfare authorities wield these powers to uh, supervise, reassemble, and destroy families with stunningly little judicial constraint or public scrutiny. Such extreme state intrusions in homes violates well-established principles of U.S. constitutional law that protect us from tyrannical government rule. Such traumatic assaults on people's most cherished relationships targeted against vulnerable populations constitutes torture under international declarations. If that is the case, then why does this continue? Why has it not been challenged in a court of law? Or has it? And it just keeps losing, as we were learning yesterday when we were discussing the uh, Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court does not always reflect justice. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, we can see in the Dobbs decision, among many others, that the Supreme Court has upheld injustice. In fact, if we look at the history of the U.S. Supreme Court, it has been anti-abolitionist, even though the Reconstruction Amendments were animated by abolitionist struggle. But the court has never recognized that and completely ignores that in the Dobbs decision eviscerating the 14th Amendment, which was only enacted after the long struggle to abolish slavery in America. So uh, no, courts do not always uphold justice and the current US Supreme Court does just the opposite. But there are legal proceedings that go on in the child welfare system. It's a heavily legalized system, uh, even though many of the constitutional requirements and even and statutory requirements are ignored all the time. But there is federal legislation that governs funding of child welfare agencies. Uh, by the way, that, that federal legislation has always required that agencies take reasonable efforts to keep families together, and they don't. So even some of the basic 
requirements of federal law aren't aren't followed as uh, as I mentioned the the Fourth Amendment requirements for a warrant to search homes rarely rarely enforced uh, the Fourteenth Amendment protection of our liberties, which again are un, uh, uh, under attack by the current U.S. Supreme Court, but we still have uh, some 14th Amendment protections that are recognized, and that includes the protection of family relationships. So that's routinely uh, ignored. The Equal Protection Clause, we're supposed to have equal protection of the law uh, without regard to race. That is routinely ignored in the targeting of Black families. So uh, these laws exist, the procedural requirements exist, but they're hardly ever followed. And there is so little attention paid to these violations. Part of the reason is this myth that many people have bought into that the system is operating to protect children. And the claim, we're protecting children, becomes an excuse to violate the rights of children and their family caregivers. So this is the excuse given for why police are brought along or why the homes are invaded without a warrant or why children are taken from their homes without a judicial proceeding. Caseworkers come in and they snatch children away on the caseworkers' determination that child removal is necessary to keep the child safe. And then they're supposed to go to court within a few days. But, you know, I just received a report, a reporter calling me up and asking me about uh, an example of where it, there's routine violation of that and children kept in foster care without any judicial approval for more than what is required by law. Uh, I write about in Torn Apart how in some places police officers take children based on the idea that they need to to keep children safe without consulting with the child welfare agency. And then they can keep them for a matter of days and uh, without any judicial review and the child welfare agency might just let that go by. And if they don't bring a formal petition against the family for child removal, it may just, they may return the child uh, after traumatizing the child and the, and the parents without any kind of judicial review. I also write about in the book how probably upwards of 250,000 children are reassembled in some way through what's called a family safety plan, which parents are pressured into agreeing to, to avoid going to court. But these are completely unsupervised by judges and caseworkers just have the power because of the threat they can make to tell parents that they have to place their child with somebody else or make other kinds of demands on the family to rearrange how they live their lives. And even if it goes to court, it is so set up against the parents. It, it's very obvious. There's a whole battery of 
lawyers on the side of the state and experts on the side of the state paid by the state to testify against parents. It's so unethical. Even the therapists that parents are forced to go to, those therapists can then turn around and use the confidential information that parents gave them about or that children give them in order to support separating the family. So the whole judicial apparatus is set up against parents. So the fact that this is a legal system doesn't mean that it's at all enforcing the law or law or justice because the laws are set up against the parents. I'll give you just one more example of how the law is set up against families. And that's the definition of neglect. Most children in foster care are there because of so-called child neglect, which means basically that their parents fail to meet their needs. It might be educational needs, health needs, housing needs. Housing is a big factor, clothing, shelter. And most of the time, this is entangled with poverty. Parents who fail to meet their children's needs usually fail because they just simply can't afford it. But this is the definition of child neglect in most states. And it is set up then to punish poverty. It's set up to punish families because of the social conditions and structures that make it difficult or impossible for them to meet all their children's needs uh, they're punished for it. Their family's disrupted. Their children are traumatized because of it. And so in just in that basic way, the laws regarding child maltreatment are unjust laws. And that's the, one of the saddest parts about this is that child removal is, due to, is often due to conditions of poverty, yet that, that poverty is never addressed. It's really just one of the most saddest parts of this whole aspect of, of all your writing. Uh, we've been speaking with Dorothy Roberts, author of Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. You can follow Dorothy on Twitter at Dorothy E. Roberts, and you can find out more about her by going to DorothyERoberts.com. I've got one last question for okay. you, Dorothy. <laughs> All right. I promise. Uh, and we do this with each and every one of our guests. It's what we call the question from hell. It's the question you may, I may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience might hate your response. You write, we should stop calling this brutal regime by its benevolent titles. I was quoting this earlier during your introduction, child welfare system, child protective services, foster care. The mission of uh, child protective services is not to care for children or protect their welfare. Rather, they respond inadequately and inhumanely to the effects of our society's abysmal failure to care enough about children's welfare. What do you mean by we don't care enough about children's welfare? And why don't we care enough? Because what it reminds me of uh, is a, a kind of a connection between our lack of care for children and the lack of care for the elderly. Why do we just simply as a society not care enough? Is it our fault or do you think that lack of care for each other is something opposed, imposed upon us? Uh, that's a good question. Well, we don't care enough for children in America. We have the highest rate of childhood poverty of any so-called developed nation, any Western nation. And 
it's even higher than in some places uh, that are developing, especially if you go into uh, the most impoverished parts of America, which are uh, very racialized as well. So uh, instead of devoting the resources, the investments, the structures, the systems that we would need to eradicate childhood poverty, we spend money on taking children from their families and maintaining them in foster care. Uh, and so uh, that's why this is a system that it not only inadequately addresses it, it is designed to hinder efforts to address childhood poverty. You know, there was an article on the front page of the New York Times just this morning about what should be pretty obvious that improving the safety net for families, and we have a, a very inadequate safety net, patchwork safety net, uh, and it doesn't even truly meet the needs of impoverished families, but we do know that because of recent increases in the safety net, partly because of the response to the COVID pandemic, more children have been raised out of poverty. You know, that should be pretty obvious. And of course, their welfare is improved by that. Uh, that we, we know what it would take, but there isn't the willingness to do it. And uh, I believe that there have been lots of suggestions, lots of paper, uh, paper written, ink spilled over why America is an outlier in the world for how rich it is and yet how stingy it is when it comes to caring for children. And I believe that racism and white supremacy are at the heart of it. Racism in America and white supremacy have been an ideology that has divided the nation into white people and everyone else with white people having an investment being told, you know, they have an investment and too many believe this in remaining the dominant group. Uh, even if they're poor, even if they're unhealthy, even if they're plagued by violence, even if they are uh, subject to suicide and uh, substance disorders, uh, even if they're unhappy, <laughs> that uh, that the even if they recognize the inadequacies of the way in which this nation cares for children and the elderly and other people in need, uh, they still would prefer to endure a nation like that as long as they can say that they are part of the privileged group. And that has been a major, if not the major, I won't quibble over what the major impediment is, but a major impediment to collective radical social change in America. You know, as W.E.B. Du Bois pointed out, uh, maybe it's even a hundred years ago now, that the working class white people in America could have joined 
with emancipated Black people. In fact, white indentured servants could have joined with enslaved Black people even prior to Reconstruction, but let's stick with Reconstruction, to radically transform labor in America and the distribution of wealth in America. And instead, most supported white supremacy and the continued subordination and in fact, virtual re-enslavement of black people. That was a huge missed opportunity for continuing the reconstruction democratic radical change in America. And it was thwarted, not just by the Klan and not just in the South, but by white people not wanting to incorporate black Americans into the privileges that, and, and I'm not talking about anything that's really beneficial, but the investment in white dominance. Uh, we always have a renewed opportunity for collective struggle. And uh, I think that some of the struggles we've been talking about today are opportunities for people across racial lines, across class lines to come together to topple these oppressive systems which harm everybody. You know, we we have a an abysmal healthcare system in America despite spending more money than any other Western nation on it, or probably I, I think any other nation period on it, uh, which harms everybody. The child welfare system targets the most marginalized, impoverished people in America, but it harms everybody because it keeps us from building a society that truly meets everyone's human needs, which would be a less violent, a less brutal, uh, a, a healthier society for everybody in, in multiple ways. And so, you know, your question, is it imposed on us or do we impose it on ourselves? I think, I think it's both. But I think a, a lot of what I want my work to do is to get people to think about the underlying fundamental false assumptions of these systems that people buy into and to recognize that by abolishing them, we would be better off just to be willing even to imagine what it would mean to meet children's needs without tearing them away from their families. Uh, just to start imagining that and thinking about other ways that we could care for children and families much better than what we do now. And what are the steps we could take toward that? So I, I recognize how deeply embedded and profound and powerful, I mean, racism, 
that even this is the subject of my book, Fatal Invention, I write about this, the, bi the false biological concept of race and how powerful that has been, you know, over 500 years now and continues to dominate science today. And many people's thinking, probably most people in America's thinking, but I think that recognizing the power of these ideologies, these ways of thinking, also lets us know that if we are willing to abandon them and recognize that they're false, it also means that we could think in a different way. You know, we could build a society that's different. We're it, it's imposed on us in a sense, but it it's not impossible to think differently. It's not impossible to imagine to build something different. And that's uh, the hope that I have in, in the work that I do. It always surprises me that when I ask a question from Hal, somehow the answer ends up being, at the end, optimistic. I really appreciate that, Dorothy. Dorothy. We have to be. Dorothy. Maybe if we, we recognize how hellish things are, we either have to just bury our heads in despair or we have to have some measure of hope, right? So I pick the latter. <laughs> Dorothy, I have really, really enjoyed this conversation. I really liked your book as well, but this conversation has just been, as I said earlier, very enlightening. Dorothy Roberts is author of Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. Thank you. I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chuck. I enjoyed it as well, and you ask great questions. And now that I have your email address, I'm going to bug you for the rest of your life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Take care, Dorothy. Take care. Bye-bye. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell if that conversation with Dorothy Roberts on child welfare and the policing of families, that was in some way enlightening, as I've been saying over and over to this morning, or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, which airs this week on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or go to this hell.com and click on support. See all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported. This is hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell. In the 26-year history of this program, which moment, topic, or guest made you mutter, this is hell, to yourself the loudest? By the way, Lindsay, you were excited about having Dorothy on the show. Wasn't that fantastic? She was great. Yeah, it was. We were talking about, and soundcheck, how we were both at the American Sociological Association annual meeting four years ago in Philadelphia. Oh, really? Yeah, it was. Uh, I was. I was, had just graduated college, um, and the topic was feeling race, and the president was Eduardo Bonilla Silva. I don't know if you've ever no talked to him. He has a book called Racism Without Racists. He would he would be a good guest. Really, I'm right, that down. <laughs> He's All right. awesome. Like black Puerto Rican Marxist oh, sociologist. Racism without racist. That sounds great. Uh huh. Okay, so let's hear some answers from the uh, question from Hell. Yeah, so uh, it looks like Jeff's answer was the last. Jeff, we Jeff had one. Dorshin from, yeah, had... Jeff and uh, Laddie, I think we read theirs, and that was it. Yesterday. Okay, yeah, so we have one from Essel S. Okay. 
This one says, every time, so I guess I should read the question again. Oh, sorry. In the 26-year history of this program, which moment, topic, or guest made you mutter, this is hell to yourself, the loudest? So SLS says, uh, every time Chuck points out that this is hell is God's favorite radio show (laughs) and invites people to prove me wrong via email at chuckatthisishell.com. Why so close to proof that this is hell is God's favorite radio station? Is what he says. All right. <laughs> so I think he's trying to say like, like why, like why is it necessary for people to prove it? To yeah, me? like why, like why do you need to be proved wrong? What, um, what is God not telling you? And I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> That's why I'm trying to find that person who knows that thing, and then I'll be suspect of every other thing that they say. Right? <laughs> I guess. God I told know. me why your show's the best. Really? Tell me more. You I might want to have, know. Yeah, you might have to personally clear this up with asshole. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, Micah D says the Henry Giroux rant. All right. <laughs> I don't know which one. Uh, it doesn't matter. Every <laughs> one of his answers is a rant. <laughs> Pete V uh, of our, of Carrie says every time the signal cuts out oh, when I'm listening. Oh, no, I hate that too. So that's all I have on on uh, Facebook. So there's two more on Twitter. Sure. If I should yeah, should I read it? Sure, why not? Okay. So, uh, let's see. Mark's price says every time Chuck gets sick or hurt. It's <laughs> the most hellish time. In- <laughs> yes. That one's nice. Okay. <laughs> maybe I won't be getting sick in the future either. Maybe this whole surgery thing fixed it. Or maybe it will be the death of or me. Or was that proof that this is not God's <laughs> favorite? <laughs> hey, I like that thinking. Okay. God uh, must hate this show. He's <laughs> been trying to smite me this whole time. Uh... Yes, okay, one last question from Korg.org, at Korg.org, or one last response, is, I remember a 2012 show on the selling of postal buildings in California, a libertarian wet dream to eliminate the commons. Sounds like my dad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and Dianne Feinstein's husband was the guy who was behind selling all of those uh, postal properties at one time. So, yeah, I remember that story, too. We should probably replay that at some point on Patreon. Again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our stuff at thisishell.com. When you click on support, we will be announcing the winner of this week's Question from Hell, following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. We'll, um, and uh, I guess, well, it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in rotten history. And we're going over a little bit this week because it doesn't matter as This Is Hell is being abbreviated by WNUR this weekend. So it just doesn't matter. On September 13, 1971, 51 years ago this week, in upstate New York, a four-day uprising by inmates of the state prison at Attica came to an end. Some 1,200 inmates, more than half the prison population, had taken control of a large part of the facility and held 42 prison staff hostage. The inmates had organized chosen leaders and spokespersons and had written up a list of demands. Very organized. Among other things, their complaints cited bad food, inadequate medical care, lack of access to reading material, excessive hours, locked in cells, and pervasive race-based harassment. But after four days, negotiations between the inmates and state authorities had broken down. New York State Governor and future Vice President Nelson Rockefeller, yeah, under Gerald Ford, see, uh, 
technically, I guess, was a vice president, uh, had refused to meet with prisoners on his orders and without any warning or issuing of an ultimatum. Hundreds of state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and prison guards moved in to retake the prison by force. And if anyone actually thought an uprising by prisoners against the poor condition of incarceration would end without violence... And they likely haven't been reading their American history. The result was a massacre in which a cloud of tear gas was followed by heavy gunfire. 33 inmates were killed and 85 wounded. Ten hostages also died along with one state trooper. In the days that followed, surviving prisoners at Attica were reportedly subject to indiscriminate beatings and torture. The massacre inspired a song by John Lennon, who put it on his 1972 album, Sometime in New York City. Later, Lennon's murderer, Mark David Chapman, would himself be incarcerated at Attica for 31 years. And if you want to check out uh, or find out more about uh, the uprising at Attica, check out our 2016 interview with Heather Ann Thompson about her book, Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy, which was selected as one of our listeners' favorites and replayed over the holidays as part of our annual year-end review back in 2016. Also in Rotten History on September 13, 1987, 35 years ago this week, in the Brazilian city of Goiânia, two scrap hunters broke into a deserted building after a security guard failed to show up for work. The site had formerly housed a hospital, which had moved to a new location, but could not retrieve all its equipment from the old building due to a legal dispute with the building's owner, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. So that's what they do with all that money from thrift stores. They open up hospitals in places like Goiânia, uh, Brazil. Who knew? Searching about, searching through the abandoned premises, these scrap hunters came upon an expensive-looking piece of gear, which they carried home in a wheelbarrow, as is your want. After trying to take the thing apart, both men got sick with vomiting and diarrhea and were diagnosed with food poisoning. Okay, at this point, I'm guessing what they were trying to steal and did steal. I'm going to guess x-ray machine. But they kept trying to disassemble the mysterious machine, and when they finally broke it down, they found a metallic capsule containing a crumbly substance that gave off a fascinating blue glow. All right, so it's got to be an x-ray machine, right? Right? Uh, They sold the capsule to a scrapyard owner who dug out the glowing powdery stuff, took it home, and invited friends and relatives to come see it. It's a real party. Even gave uh, gave them little bits of it to keep for themselves. The scrap dealer's brother took some of the luminous powder home and gave it to his six-year-old daughter, who played with it, spread it on her skin, and sprinkled some onto her food. Within a couple of weeks, the little girl was dead, as were three other people who had also come into contact with the glowing material. It was a salt derived from cesium-137, a highly radioactive isotope of the type used in radiation treatments for cancer. So, not an x-ray machine? 46 other people across the neighborhood also suffered serious health effects from contact with the material. More than 100,000 residents of Goiânia were eventually tested for exposure, and some 250 were found to have significant levels of radioactive contamination in their bodies and in their homes. The two scrap hunters who originally pilfered the radioactive material were never charged with a crime, but a court ordered the hospital to pay restitution to the victims after contaminated cars and houses were demolished and personal possessions were destroyed and buried. Cesium-137 is a human-made isotope, naturally, tiny amounts of which were spread worldwide by the first U.S. atomic bomb test in 1945. Larger amounts are now 
present in the areas around Chernobyl and Fukushima, so this is a human-made disaster. So it wasn't an x-ray machine, but something involved in the care for cancer victims. Either way, that's definitely rotten history. And this is Hell. Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Tomorrow's guest is James Wilt, author of Drinking Up the Revolution, How to Smash Big Alcohol and Reclaim Working Class Joy. James is the writer and is a writer and PhD candidate based in Winnipeg, Canada, and thanks to Scott Price of CKUW in Winnipeg, who suggested James be on the show next week. Or this week at this point. This week. That's my mistake. And of course, as always, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host. Thanks to Lindsay Gorey for producing. Always wonderful being here with you. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>